What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Christian Agemeyer is the founder and CEO of Apiron Investment Group, which serves as his family office. Christian has previously built and invested in numerous multi-billion dollar companies. In this conversation, we discuss investing in innovation, including biotech, longevity, psychedelics, cannabis, fintech, Bitcoin, crypto, and deep tech. I really enjoyed this conversation with Kristen, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is BlockFi. I'm an investor, I sit on the board, and I'm a very happy user. I think you will be too. BlockFi has three products today. You can buy and sell crypto on a crypto exchange. You can deposit crypto and take out a US dollar loan against your crypto collateral. Or you can deposit crypto and earn up to 8.6% APY in an interest-bearing account. They've also announced that they are going to launch a Bitcoin rewards credit card. That's right. It is a regular credit card that will pay you in Bitcoin rather than cashback or airline miles. You can go to BlockFi.com slash POMP to use any of the current products or sign up for the credit card waiting list. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP. I love them and you will too. BlockFi.com slash POMP. Next up is Choice by Kingdom Trust. Choice is an awesome self-directed IRA product that allows you to buy Bitcoin with funds in your retirement account and hold the private keys. That is right. Choice is solving one of the major problems in this industry. There are 7.1 million people who own Bitcoin but hold nothing but dollars in their retirement account. If you don't have Bitcoin in your retirement account, you can use Choice to solve that problem. Go to retirewithchoice.com slash pump. Again, retirewithchoice.com slash pump. You will be able to get a self-directed IRA, buy Bitcoin, and hold your private keys and use tax advantage dollars to do it all. Again, retirewithchoice.com slash pomp. Lastly, do not forget that I write a daily letter to over 90,000 investors every single morning that covers business technology and finance. I break down complex topics in easy to understand language. You can sign up at pompletter.com. Again, pompletter.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Christian. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I have a very special treat for you today. Christian is here. Thank you so much for doing this, sir. Welcome. I'm super happy to be on the podcast. Super excited. Uh, so, yeah. Absolutely. Let's just jump right into your background. There's a lot of people who probably know some of the work that you've done, uh, but don't necessarily know your entire story. So where did you grow up and kind of how did you get into business and investing? Wow, broad question. So um, I grew up in Germany, to be precise, actually in Bavaria, which maybe some of you know from Oktoberfest. Uh, it's always very funny because I never drank alcohol so far. So although alcohol is like the Bavarian like basic nutrition. So so I and you've never up- drank any. You've never drank any alcohol. No, no I didn't. Why? 
Um, super long story. I tried many. When I grew up in Bavaria, like I, I grew up in this super tiny village. Like till till I was nine, it was like ninety people, and then we moved to a town which was two thousand people. So it was very sheltered, and I always already early realized that I had two things which um, sort of are very special. Which what was happy about it was I was always a very happy child. And I was also always very good in school. So, and I, I was really afraid of losing that. So I was like, ah, if I put something in my brain like alcohol, then, um, then maybe I'm losing that sort of perfect equilibrium. So, so I decided not to touch it. And then it was a, a stupid bet. So it was really like, like when we were like 13 years old, I was like, I'm never going to drink alcohol. And then all my friends were like, you're not going to make that, not in Bavaria. And then it became a a bet that I'm not drinking alcohol till I'm 18. So if the whole school was watching yeah, that I'm not drinking. And then it sort of stayed that way. Once you're not drinking, you're a designated driver. And then I really think it's really bad. So, so I know it's like, uh, I always spoil the party, but like, um, but I don't mind if other people drink, but I just think it's not, it's not a healthy thing to do. And uh, so I didn't start it. I love that. All right. So you're growing up uh, there. You moved to this town of 2,000 people. And then what do you do? Um, well, I went to school. Um, and after high school, which is in Germany, high school is like high school plus college in America. So when I was 19, um, I actually had one year of civil service, which was maybe the most important thing because till I was 19, till I was 18, till I finished high school, I was extremely set to do something academic. So I was I had the luck. I was really, really good in school. I got a lot of scholarships. So, and I was really thinking, okay, I'm going to go to university, study, become a professor or whatever. Um, and, uh, and then I, did, I had to do one year of civil service. So you either in Germany go to the army or you go to a hospital. And I thought as a libertarian, I didn't really know the word back then, but like, I thought that's really a crime that the government is telling me for one year of my life what to do. So I had these sort of silent revolution that I, I think it's maybe bad if I tell it now, but it, it doesn't matter. It's 20 years ago. Um, so I didn't show up. I was always like going to the doctor and, uh, and saying that uh, I'm sick and I can't go. And uh, I started actually speculating on the stock market. And then I did it for friends and I was managing a bit of money. And then, so in this one year, I changed from a very academic sort of uh, trajectory to a very entrepreneurial one. And then I started studying economics, um, but I was already set now, this was 1999, I need to do my own company. This was the first internet boom. Um, and I was like, okay, I need to find an idea. And then I had this scholarship for, for science. Uh, and so I had these side tutoring with two famous guys who were like um, um, biology professors. And I asked them, okay, hey, what are you doing when you're not tutoring little Christian? Um, and they told me about an idea which was super fascinating. I understood half of it. Um, it was practically simplified said how you switch on and off the human DNA. And I was like, that sounds so great. I might have found the guys to start my company with. And I said, why don't we do it together? And I don't know why they said yes to a 19 year old turning 20, but we did the company together. It was called Rebo Pharma. It's now called Al Nylum. Um, and it became really big because these two guys, I mean, it's all credentials to them. They had made this amazing uh, innovation. Um, and the company today, I mean, I sold very early, but the company today on Island is like, a, didn't check it lately, but like 15 
16 billion dollar uh, company. So that was the start in biotech. Um, I skipped uni then. Uh, I was never really there ever. Um, and since then, I'm investing, uh, founding, and investing. So I'm somewhat in between an entrepreneur and uh, investor. And so when you started that first company uh, and it started to get big, you sold it at some point. What was the thought process between uh, you know trying to run the company forever and that being kind of your legacy versus selling it and going and doing other things? How did you kind of think through what you should do? I was always winning. It was never meaning. First of all, I was the junior partner. So the two guys were running it. Yeah. So um, I was uh, raising the first funds and, and I was always and this is what still what I am. Like I would say something in between very entrepreneurial, but also like more like an investor who wants to have a portfolio. So I'm always interested in um, new stuff. I don't want to do one company or one thing the whole day, the whole year. Like, so early on, like I was looking left and right and what can I build around? What else can I do? So it was always clear that I want to build up uh, a portfolio. Got it. That makes a ton of sense. And so today, basically, most of the things that you do are under a Perian uh, investment group. It's kind of family office slash business. H- how do you kind of think through that uh, that entity? Well, it's, so um, it's a Pyron. People always say a Perian was a was a famous uh, mythological horse, I think, and a Pyron. Uh, it's just the EI um, is um, is sort of the. The, the philosophical idea of the essence that the every every everything uh, has an essence, a core which is immutable and defines what it is, and that's the apiron in the in 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 Greek philosophy. I'm super super geek when it comes to to history. So um, so apiron is it is my family office. So we don't we have in apiron. It's just my own capital. Um, uh, we have two funds which we span out, so to say. But I'm still the sort of the GP and I'm also the, the largest LP in the funds. Yeah. Um, so we have sort of outside money into defined strategies, but in a pyron itself, uh, it's just uh, our own capital. And we do three things. We do um, um, biotech, which is obviously where um, I started. Uh, we do a lot of fintech, insurtech, prop tech, uh, and crypto, uh, which is obviously how we met. And then we also, we do the third thing is deep tech, which is anything from space tech, AI, uh, robotics, so all the cool stuff, real technological innovation. So let's start with the biotech space. Uh, You have done an incredible amount. Uh, You've got uh, Atai Life Sciences, uh, which has led to all kinds of innovation in different companies. Maybe just start with like, what is your thesis on biotech or what are the areas that you're most interested in in that bucket? A broad question. So, so first of all, I think um, biotech will be the, at least one of the most likely the best performing asset class, maybe next to Bitcoin. <laughs> but like, I think it's, let's, let's, let's say one of the, the best performing asset classes. I think really we're going into this golden age uh, of biotech. Um, so what tech was, and obviously tech will still do well, but like what tech was the last two decades, I think the next two decades will be biotech. So I'm super excited that practically we're going back where we started. And this is why over the last four or five years, uh, we've built up sort of our biotech portfolio, which is at the moment around about 50% of, of my entire portfolios in biotech. Um, and, and it mean COVID is just, if you take COVID, is, is one, sometimes is the wrong word, is one example where actually we see that people 
um, extremely value their health. So I think the same pandemic 20 years ago would have led to a different treatment or treatment, I mean, different handling of it. So the fact that we more or less with a broad majority that people say, hey, let's do the lockdown. Yeah. And now don't want to go into lockdown discussions, but like it's so emotional in America, it's so political. But just like if you see that the fact that people approve it, although definitely the lockdowns have a very negative effect on the economy, but also, by the way, but it's not on the health of the people indirectly, but people want the government to take care of their health, I think, more than they did 20, 30 years ago. So the priorities have shifted. Yeah, so people demand health, and I think politicians are realizing that, and a lot of politicians uh, I'm speaking to are like, well, beyond COVID, we want to focus way more on keeping our our voters healthy, actually. Yeah, and that means that companies, biotech companies, which deliver our product is making people hopefully healthy, yeah, that they're gonna go up in value. That's I think is a little bit like the, the super macro uh, view on it. And then actually uh, also another, um, another driver is that if you look at all the ancillary services you need to start and run a biotech company, they all have the, the prices of them, like gene sequencing, whatever, buying a genetic modified mouse, yeah? So that all has crashed, like partly 99% cheaper, 95% cheaper than it used to be. So, so many, many factors feeding into that, that I think, as I said, biotech is gonna be the, the number one asset class over the next uh, 10, 20 years. And Absolutely. then we, yeah, so and, and my, I mean, and then within biotech, meaning obviously almost everything in biotech is interesting because you always help people, but our few or our main focus is on um, longevity um, and on mental health. Because sort of my, I'm actually always very honest, like I'm doing, or I'm, I, I want to be sure. So the two things or the three things I really want in life, I want to be happy, which was always like very important for me that I sort of live my life in a way that I'm happy. And I, I think I am, I wake up in the morning, life is awesome. Like I feel comfortable. It doesn't mean every day is great, but like, sort of we have a basic sort of happiness feeling so i want to be happy then i want to be healthy obviously and once you're health, healthy and happy you want to live at least very long if not forever at least i want to live as long till i say look no more i had enough christmases i had enough birthdays yeah so so and this is why we focus practically very egoistically on these two things on mental health on the one side and on on longevity on the other side so let's start with longevity first, because I think that one is uh, what people are probably most familiar with out of those two. Uh, on the longevity side, how do you see the technology landscape uh, kind of evolving? And are we talking about things that are um, kind of uh, short-sighted in the sense of like, hey, if we just make you healthier, then you can live longer? Or are we talking about things that are much more long-term, like we literally want to make it so that you can live for 200 years, 250-year yeah. type stuff? So it's getting there it's getting to the latter one so i think as you said first of all obviously you can always say every biotech progress which avoids us dying like every cancer treatment if you don't die of cancer you're going to live longer in average yeah although by the way it's not i think the number i just read was like even if we completely would eradicate cancer um the overall life expectancy would just go up like three years or something because then you die of something else when you're very old yeah so it's not that easy. So what we're talking about when we talk about longevity is really 
finding the reason why we age. So my personal view is, and I know it's a controversial, I don't even understand why it's controversial because I think everybody should think aging sucks. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but aging is not natural. We know how I mean, you still look very young and hot, but like we know how the 20 year old Anthony looks because your DNA is the same on the day you were born on the day you were 20 on a, on a day you're 80. Yeah. But something is happening by the translation of sort of the, the construction plan for Anthony is, is sort of changing. So why do we get wrinkles? Why do we get gray hair? So something is going wrong. Yeah. And philosophically seen because, because it's happening since humanity is thinking and recording, memorizing. I mean, we, we ingrained aging and dying so much in our culture and our religion that we deeply, deeply think it's natural. But the same in the medieval ages, people were thinking that the Black Death is a punishment of God. And someone, and it was really for them, it was miraculously, people were dying. They had these whatever things on the skin and somewhere they were dying and it was like, okay, it must be a punishment of God. And just like very later we found out, no, it's a, it's a bacterium, yeah? And we can cure it, yeah? And the same, I think someone we're gonna see, and we start actually already now to understand why we aging, yeah, and we can say it is a disease. And once we understand why we're aging, we will be able to stop it, slow it down, stop it. And someone will even be able to reverse it. Yeah, so that's natural. That's how humans progress. Yeah, and, uh, and this is what we focus on. So really pushing the boundaries of understanding aging and, and hopefully finding sort of cures or slowing it down. And, and by that, you automatically expand life expectancy much more than what is now seen to be normal. Over the last two years, uh, or prior to the last two years, I knew nothing about this stuff. And uh, I started to look more into it when I heard, uh, I think it was uh, David Sinclair maybe, was the guy who basically started talking about, you know, aging is a disease. Right. And that's a framework that I think most people don't think of it through. Uh, but when you start to really understand kind of what's happening in the body, uh, one, it becomes very fascinating that like, yes, it is more likely that this is a disease than anything. Uh, and it just happens that we all get it. But also, two is it feels like we've made pretty far advancements in understanding how far have the advancements, though, been in how do we actually address it or how do we you know, take life expectancy from, you know, kind of late 70s, early 80s to, let's say, 150 years? Like, is that something that's likely to happen quickly? Is that something where, you know, there's somebody who's born today that will live to 150? How do you kind of just think through the progress that's being made? Again, these are all hopefully educated guests I'm making, but I, I think who somebody's born today will live have, let's say I have the potential to live some hundred years because also what people underestimate is, and again, by the way, but have to say I'm a super optimist for technology in general and for progress, but like, but I think we underestimating um, exponential growth in biotech. So we all are used to, like, if you look at our iPhone, yeah. Uh, meaning what was it like 11 years ago, 12 years ago, there was no iPhone. When was it like, it was 10, 12 years ago. I think it started. Yeah. And if you then see how much has changed and how much progress we had in, the, in 10, 12 years. Yeah. So we tend not to see that automatically in biotech because the, 
the the the, the, the so because because we, we we have these sort of phase one, phase two, phase three. So which takes a long time. So what people see now, actually, everything you or everything the normal person sees coming out of the biotech industry to market is actually technology from 10 years ago. So and what's actually happening right now is that we see the same exponential growth. Yeah, we have seen in a lot of other uh, technologies. We also seeing in biotech, but the consumer, so to say, will really start realizing that in maybe five years from now. But like, I firmly believe like in the next 10 to 20 years, we will see enormous progress in biotech on all fronts, yeah, uh, which a lot of people maybe at the moment can't grasp. So if you think that's true, if you're like uh, 40 years old at the moment, yeah, you, your life expectancy today is let's say 80 for the sake to make it simple. So you have a 40 year remaining life expectancy. So, and now think about it. If you look at other technologies where you realize what exponential growth is, uh, what in these 40 years, four zero years of exponential growth can and will happen. I think it's really hard to imagine. So, so let's say just now to be easy and simple and conservative that we will be able to, within the next 20, 30, 40 years, to push life expectancy 20 years. So from 80-ish to 100, but that adds another 20 years of optionality. So the, the way I look at all of that is pure optionality. I want to have optionality because I think we're actually right at the, at the how you say, inflection point where this all takes off. Yeah? And my view is if I survive the next 20 years, then sort of the game is open for, for way longer. Yeah? And this Absolutely. is why, sorry for the long explanation, but I, if I throw out now, I believe I can be 150, 200, whatever people say, okay, he's crazy. But if you see that, that it's not a, it will, there will be not a day where we wake up in the morning and you're going to read the headline, oh, life expectancy jumped from 80, 85 to 150, but it's sort of a gradual sort of increase. And I just need to make sure that I'm always still alive when the next breakthrough uh, is happening, if it makes sense. Absolutely. And last thing on the longevity before we move on is just what do you do personally uh, in terms of kind of positioning yourself for the highest probability or, or longest life? Are there things that you eat or drink oh, yeah. or, or uh, you know, certain habits that you have that uh, that, that you're focused on? Well, it, it, I have a lot. Uh, so I, I, I tried because I'm okay. This, I'm also very geeky in that. So I, I, um, I take, I think like 40 pills a day, like uh, everything, like water is not bad. Like, no, so, but I'll actually... First of all, by the way, so uh, again, um, I'm uh, I'm 42. So, what is the main risk for me for somebody who's around 40? Yeah, it's actually in the next again, and I'm talk, just focused on let's make it simple to not die the next 20 years. So the one is like um, not getting a, a cardiovascular disease. Yeah, the second one is not getting cancer, and the third one is not getting uh, not not have an accident. So if you avoid, if you're 40 and if you avoid having cancer, a cardiovascular disease or, um, or an accident, the likelihood that you're still around when you're 60 is actually pretty high. So my whole regime is, is centered around risk mitigation. So I'm not skiing. I'm really wherever I can. I'm not going on a German autobahn yeah, because driving a car is insanely risky. Um, I'm really trying to think through not doing any stupid 
risky thing to avoid the accident. Second, uh, and then the second is like have a health regime which is focused on not getting cancer and not getting a cardiovascular disease, which is a lot, but like the main things are alcohol is really bad. Like I can come back to that. I know I'm party pooper, uh, but like alcohol is really bad. Smoking is really bad. So by the way, it's these famous 80-20 rules. You can do a lot, but if you sort of focus on, let's say five, six core things, like no alcohol, no smoking, I'm obsessed with sleep. So I think you have to, meaning we, we have, there is this great book because I can tell you now in five minutes what that guy have, has, has put in a book, which is amazing. It's called Why We Sleep from, from Matthew Walker. And it just shows you the statistics, what's happening with your body when you sleep too little. Yeah. So for example, I try to have the luxury to not wake up with an alarm clock. So I always try to do emails in the morning so I can wake up whenever I want so my body can take the sleep. Yeah, uh, I need like around about eight hours. By the way, there's also no chance, no chance that you train yourself to sleep less. If anybody thinks that, it's always a disastrous outcome. You have a natural genetic uh, sleep need and you need to keep it. So sleep, no alcohol, um, getting your basic nutrition. What David Sinclair is actually um, um, promoting, which is very good, is, is NM, NMN and NAD plus, uh, which is sort of a, I don't want to say it's a vitamin because it isn't, but it's like a nutrition, um, what you can get. Um, resveratrol is good. Fasting is great. So I try to do, I don't eat or I don't have any calorie intake for 16 hours a day. So I do every day forever, like since years, intermittent fasting because it's the way I can integrate it easy in my life. Checkup is super important. Yeah, a lot of bad things you see happening. Like you can, uh, if, if you really would be about to get a heart attack, you can see that a year or partly two with the right sort of checkup, cancer, whatever. So if you get it, if you see it early, it's not that bad. So I do a checkup every year. Like, yeah, that, that may be the main things, but I have a whole uh, list of stuff. I think that's a fantastic... Um... It's great, it's, which is, by the way, one of the first sort of, longevity drugs, uh, meaning by the way, this is obviously, I'm not a doctor, obviously uh, everybody needs to consult, but like metformin is a diabetes drug, which seems to have a very positive effect on, uh, on aging. Got it. Uh, and then from a diet standpoint, do you, you said intermittent fasting, but when you do eat, do you eat any specific type of diet? Um, I try to do, but it's, I think there is a little bit more complicated. I don't think it's, it's, it's a little bit also how your body reacts on certain stuff. So I don't mean, I do a low carb diet, but because I know I react badly on carbs. Yeah. Uh, at least on the sort of bad ones, bread, pasta, whatever, but other people might need it. So I, I'm, but in generally I'm in the sort of little meat, no zero meat, but a lot of fish. Yeah. Um, uh, a lot kind of, of med Mediterranean. Yeah. Mediterranean or yeah, got it. All right, let's switch gears to uh, mental health. Um, I feel like this has uh, been thrust into the um, you know kind of main stage with uh, COVID and the lockdowns and all of that. Uh, you've got a very specific, I think, one view on mental health in general and, and kind of how big of a problem it is, but also what some of the solutions are. Just walk me through kind of why you're so interested in this space. Okay, why well, I'm interested. I mean, it came a little bit by, I told you, like on a one side, I was always interested for myself, completely egoistic in being happy. And I actually, I think, or no, I think I'm sure I have to attribute it to my parents. So my parents always gave me, I'm, I have a super relationship. They gave me all the love I needed. And they always sort of gave me the feeling that I should be who I want to be. Like, 
So there was no, but I coming from a very basic background, it was zero centered around sort of success or whatever. It was just like sort of be a happy child, like do whatever you want. There was zero pressure to do X or whatever. Yeah. So, but I think, so I, I always, first of all, I was always and I am happy, but I also was always interested because somewhere in around 20, I started figuring out other people's are actually not always happy. So many, we come in a second to mental health when you really say, depression and sort of the very sort of the defined illness but what always negatively fascinated me that if you look at at humans like while maybe maybe 15 percent of, of of the world population have really like a clinically diagnosed mental health issue like depression or whatever i think there are very little people who truly would say that they are happy so i think there is a huge part in between like who would say well i'm not depressed but i'm also not really happy. So I was always interested in that. I produced a movie, um, which did very well, which was called Hector and the Search for Happiness uh, with uh, some cool people like Rosamund Pike and, and Christopher Plummer. So it was, it was always this happiness thing. And then I had this one evening where actually friends were setting me up a bit because, so I was at a dinner and there was a very famous neuroscientist who's actually um, sort of also like sort of the drug czar in Germany, like for the public opinion on what's good, what's bad, like, and, uh, and they told him, they said, oh, you need to loosen up Christian a bit because then he could drink alcohol with us tonight. So they were thinking like this guy could convince Christian to drink one glass of alcohol. Yeah. And so they sat me next to him and were like, this guy can tell you, you're not going to die when he's drinking alcohol. I was like, look, guys, I know I'm not going to die. The only, by the way, and the only reason why I'm so strictly not drinking alcohol now is because the social pressure is so high once you start. So the good thing is everybody knows Christian is not drinking. So nobody, even when I did business in China or whatever, nobody's bothering me. Yeah. Which is very rare because normally they, yeah. And so, so, but I, I started talking to the guy. I can't say the name because he's always a little bit worried to what comes next, what he promoted. And I was like, look, I'm super pragmatic. I'm an investor. Let's go through um, all the drugs out there, like legal and illegal. And if you can tell me there is one drug who has more upsides than downsides, I'm completely up for it. Like, or let's think about it. And there, he pulled up actually a chart. And uh, for everybody who's watching, you need to watch the chart or Google it if you, because it's another colleague of him here in London, who in the meantime uh, is also a good acquaintance, Professor David Nutt, like N-U-T-T. And if you Google David Nutt chart, then his famous chart comes up. What he did, he ranked every single drug, legal and illegal, um, actually how risky it is. And without spoiling the surprise, but alcohol comes out first. So in a, in a, in a overall risk assessment, um, actually alcohol, and this was actually a little bit the controversial part of his study, but it's a complete accurate study. Alcohol is, is way, is in an overall risk assessment is, is a little bit more risky than heroin. Heroin came second. Yeah. Um, and then came crack cocaine, whatever. So, so in the chart, like you see, like very bad at the beginning and then at the very end, practically no risk came all the psychedelics, like, MDMA, magic mushrooms, LSD. And this guy, this is why I can't say the name, was like, Christian, don't touch the rest. Don't even touch alcohol. Yeah, don't touch heroin, obviously. Don't touch anything of these bad stuff because you see it's bad. But you should do actually psychedelics. And you should especially do magic mushrooms. And I was like, look, you're insane. Like, it's an illegal drug. 
Uh, I don't even drink alcohol, although I saw it in front of me that alcohol is so, so, so more bad. And you can't even rate it because magic mushrooms have really like low risk or practically the only risk of mushrooms, which she told me was like, you can sort of hurt yourself or have an accident when you do it. Um, but I was like, look, this is, no, I'm not going to do it. I stay like completely sober, like, like I am. Uh, but he was like, look, I am, he actually did his PhD, which super impressed me with a famous guy called uh, Professor Hoffman, who was the guy who synthesized LSD. So he was like, let me send you all the studies. This was so well researched in the 60s and 50s. And then it became purely illegal for, for political reasons. It should have never gotten illegal. Um, and you're a biotech guy, so you're going to understand it. Let me say, I was like, okay, I'm always up for new stuff. So that's one of the things in life I think you need to by the way, and I, I believe, sorry, when I'm jumping now, but this is an integral part of staying healthy, healthy meaning young in your brain. We talked about a lot um, about how staying young, young in the body, but we didn't talk about aging of the brain, which is aging, like physical aging, but also like people, yeah, age sort of, they become complacent, whatever. So, and I believe in you need to shock your brain all the time, positively shock with new ideas. So I was like, okay, bring it on. I want to, I want to look at new stuff. So he sent me all the stuff, I read it, and it was really compelling. Meaning, again, let's say with uh, magic mushrooms, um, they were legal, they were used um, as a medication. We had all the studies in the 60s, and it was a pure political reasons uh, why they, why they went, uh, became illegal. So it stick in my mind. It took me a year, though, so I'm less adventurous, maybe, as some might think. So and then, and I also, I'm very spiritual. I believe that things are happening at the right moment, in the right moment in life and time. So one year later, I was with my dearest friends um, in the Caribbean, uh, which is an important side note because it's a place where it's legal. Um, and they had real magic mushrooms. Like I saw it, it was organic, it was homegrown, so to say. And they were like, wanna try? Um, and I read so much about it. I called my friend, the guy who told me about it, it was like Shola, and he was like, as a doctor, I tell you, do it. Can't be better, set and setting. And um, it was the single most meaningful thing I've ever done in my whole life. Nothing really comes close. And I can't sort of um, emphasize how, um, how yeah, important groundbreaking that was. Um, Why? That's very hard to describe. That's, that's one of the sort of, uh, I, I try, uh, but like, as a disclaimer before, the problem on a problem, the, the beauty is that you go, you go on a completely different, let's say, as a disclaimer, I just want to be precise. And because I want to be precise, it's so complicated. You can't describe psychedelic use without using religious terms. It's a very spiritual drug. They have been used actually for thousands of years um, in, uh, in ceremonial setting, actually, most religions, actually, including Christianity are most likely based on psychedelic use. So, but when I use now a religious term, because religions is one of the really like, um, sort of everybody, even if somebody would say he's an atheist, religion is so ingrained in our life that if I use the word, let's for the, if I use the word God or soul, you're going to have an immediate idea in your mind that it might be different from what I try to say. So, so it's really a problem of language because our especially religious terms are so loaded with 
history and emotions and personal belief. Yeah. So, so, but ultimately you're going on another level of consciousness where in one way or the other, but interestingly, all the descriptions of people who are doing it are then ultimately similar. Again, they're trying to describe, if, if, if you've done it, you immediately know what they want to describe. You, you meet sort of, you can say the divine, the core of the universe. Some people would say they meet themselves, which is one of the very, very healing aspects of psychedelics is that you meet yourself and um, in a very positively meant naked, pure form, your, call it your soul, your inner self, your whatever, you, you know what I mean? Like, and, and, uh, and this gives you so much insights. You could say this is like, the positive effects of psychotherapy within what, what other people would achieve with 10,000 hours of psychotherapy, you achieve in four hours of trip. Yeah. And that is so valuable. It's also, it gives everybody as it seems what he or she needs at this certain moment in time. So you might come out and have a total different, it's called the revelation or learning. And these are all also teachers drugs. Like, again, this is what they were used for, for thousands of years for people to learn and, and grow as a human being. So you might have a, a different sort of takeaway because you might need a different lesson or a different learning than I might need at the same time. So also all of my trips, they have been similar and different with the messages or the learnings I had at, at different points over the last years and they change. And this is the beauty of it. What is the kind of uh, manifestation of this in terms of where you're putting capital uh, or the companies that you're building? I know you've got a tie. I know you, uh, Compass. Like, th there's kind of a whole bunch of stuff that's going on. How do you think about where you're actually investing, um, and then also what companies you're building? Well, so so after that trip I had, um, I um, this was one of the first ideas I had. Was like, oh my god this needs to be legal again, because this is everything. I realized if it has such a profound positive experience on me as a happy person. Yeah. And again, it made my life tremendously even more happy. Yeah. But already starting at a decent sort of um, level of happiness, I completely understood what I had read before purely on paper, that it, why it works for people who have depression, anxiety, addiction, uh, any form of, of mental health issue. So, so I was like, okay, that needs to be legal again. And then I, uh, I was actually looking around because I was convinced somebody needs to work on that because these are so powerful substances. And then nobody did. I mean, not in this millennia, so to say, yeah, because it was completely, again, which is one of the saddest part of politics that we were, uh, that these substances sort of were, shut down or were taken taken away um and then i was actually was looking around and uh i can tell the story because you know the other guy i think by it, it is one of the, the stories i always use because because again i'm personally very spiritual and i think things happen at the same time what happened is i had one later i mean for two years i was looking around and like talking to scientists but this was all again now everybody talks about psychedelics and you have books about it and people are open about it but like it was really like this was a fringe science and scientists were there so it's always very important yeah i want to make clear because I mean, it's obvious but i did not invent psychedelics like i'm standing on the shoulders of giants there's there are cool people who are not around anymore like 
Shulgin or Hoffman or whatever, but they are still also very amazing people from from back then around, like uh, like Rick Doblin, who's running maps and whatever. So I, I try to get in touch with these people, with scientists, whatever. And then I, um, and it's a big shout out to him because, uh, and we have, a, he's also a shareholder of a Thai. So I was in New York after I, I came, did not do it in America. So I came from, a, 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 right after Christmas, I had a, a, one of the best trips, trips, literally trips of my life. I was in New York and, and on this trip, one of the message was, Christian, you should talk about it more openly because it's so positive. And, and so it's, you shouldn't be afraid because the first two years I was not like now on a podcast. Like I was telling my parents, I was telling like friends. Yeah. But I was very holding back. Yeah. Because a lot of people said, don't talk about it. Meaning you're in finance, like you're, you're an investor. Like you, I, I have a lot of politicians as friends, like don't talk about magic mushrooms. Um, and, um, so, and on this one trip, which was a very defining one, the message actually of the trip was do talk about it. So, I went to New York and I met Mike Novogratz and he was sort of the first person to work on my, my mission because Mike was like, you know, Mike, how he is, Hey, what are you up to? And I was like, well, actually I just did an amazing magic mushroom trip. And I told Mike the same, what I told you for two hours, like how amazing it is. And, um, and like many other people, he was like, well, that's interesting. I had done it in my youth, like it's a college drug, maybe in America, but I haven't done it. And he had not talked about it for 20 years or whatever. So the next day, the phone is, my phone is ringing. It's Mike. And he was like, Christian, you can't believe it. This is such a rare or weird coincidence. You told me about magic mushrooms yesterday for the first time in 20 years. And one day later, he said, my sister called me. She's on Bali with a crazy couple from London who are working on bringing magic mushrooms back as a depression treatment. And she called Mike and said, from all the people I know, you might be crazy enough yeah, to finance these guys. And Mike was like, well, my friend Christian is in London and might be even a bit crazier. Yeah. So, and this is how I met George Goldsmith and, and his wife, uh, Katya. Um, who were thinking the same. They were, it's the company Compass uh, and uh, Compass wasn't even existing. They were thinking about starting it and needed a, a seed investor. But back then, most of the people said, again, don't touch that, can't put money in. Most of the venture funds said, who we don't know. Yeah. By the way, although everything we do at Compass and Atai is completely legal because we're running clinical trials, we're not, yeah, um, Anyway, so I met George and Katya, amazing human beings. And after 15 minutes, I was like, you know what? Uh, I'm in, yeah, I'm giving you the money you need um, to start Compass. And uh, I called Mike uh, because obviously he sort of made the intro and said, you wanna be on board? And then I also called my friend Peter Thiel um, because he's also interested in this crazy kind of stuff. Um, and here we are. So that was the foundation of Compass, which was the first for-profit psychedelic company again in this millennia. And so how does a tie fit in? Like a tie is almost like a holding company that holds uh, equity in Compass and a number of other companies. So right after we started Compass, Compass was always focused on, uh, again, let me precise the active ingredient in magic mushrooms uh, and the artificial synthetic version, which is called psilocybin. And, uh, the more than I dived into it, this was now 2017, um, the more I dived into it, I realized, well, there are more psychedelic drugs. And by the way, the brain is also 
a very complex uh, organ. So uh, it, there is there will never be a one drug fits all. There will not even be. I'm not a proponent of oh, psychedelic drugs will solve everything. I think psychedelic drugs as a as sort of a universe of drugs are an extremely important part of the tool set, but also other drugs we still have, like SSRIs, yeah, psychotherapy, whatever. It's, it's, what, what, what I think it's like, it's, you have to give a doctor who knows the patient the tool set and then he can pick. But So I realized there are more of these psychedelics. There is DMT, which people know because it's the active ingredient of ayahuasca. Um, there is ibogaine, which is the only known compound or only known drug we know, which is completely... Uh, or has the potential to completely eradicate addiction. Yeah, so if, if it's used actually in Mexico already in clinics to get people off even heroin and opioids, which is one of the strongest forms of addiction. There, is, uh, there are new versions of ketamine who can be very um, supportive or very helpful against depression. So there are so many. So Compass wanted to focus on, um, on, um, on psilocybin. So I was like, okay, but I... I want to work on all the, again, what I told you before, I always want to have a portfolio. So I started a tie as a platform where we build up a very strong team. It's more than a holding because what I realized is Encompass is a little bit the exception because they already, George came out of the, uh, of the sort of business side. He knew how to run and fundraise and whatever. So, but most of the people who are actually scientists who were working with these drugs, again, they never stopped. They were just like very fringe. They were not commercial. They didn't know how to raise money. They, and it's, by the way, it's even a different talent to sort of know everything about a drug, how it works, and then to structure a clinical trial, yeah, uh, whatever. So, so a tie is way more than a holding. We have a strong clinical trial team. Yeah, we have obviously, obviously a strong finance team, fundraising. We raised more than um, $200 million over the last two years. Um, and, um, and we started actually partnering with a lot of these scientists. Yeah, there is a, uh, a great colleague, Deborah Mash. She's working on Ibogaine since more than 20, I think 30 years. Yeah, she's Mrs. I, she, what, what Rick Doblin is for MDMA, Deborah is for Ibogaine. So we partnered with Deborah yeah, and now have a 50-50 uh, joint venture where we bringing Ibogaine back as a therapy for, for or against addiction. Yeah, so we, we started onboarding all of these drugs on our Thai platform, yeah, and have now more than 12 new uh, mental health drugs in the pipeline in various stages of uh, clinical trials. Got it. And so when you think about kind of where the psychedelic space is going, is this something where uh, we'll continue to see um, kind of acceptance in the medicinal space and, and uh, it'll be much more heavily regulated? It'll be for mental health and other type of uh, health uh, um, you know, issues, or do you think that we'll eventually see kind of recreational uh, type uh, legislation and uh, really anyone in the United States will be able to uh, go to a store, they can buy marijuana, they could buy psychedelics, they could buy alcohol, they kind of just have, you know, really um, free choice across a lot of these different uh, items. I, I mean, I hope, but I also don't um, I, I also see the future in the medical field for, for a very simple reason. It's not marijuana. It's not cannabis. It's 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 waste. All these psychedelics, yeah, starting from magic mushrooms, they are way stronger, way more potent, which is the beauty of them. 
but they were never recreational drugs, never. So while marijuana was always used as a sort of these sort of, let's say, yeah, recreational party side, if you look, and I'm very, very also trying to understand and learn more always about the history of psychedelics, they were always used in a religious ceremonial setting with a guide, call it shaman, call it priest, and um, a disciple. Yeah, They were never used at home for like just partying. Yeah. Uh, but it's very important because they're extremely strong drugs. And part of the upside, and also if you look at um, if you look at patients, yeah, and that's what we focused on, part of the healing process is also the interaction with the therapist. So this is not a, a smarty drug you pop at home and then the disease miraculously goes away. Yeah. So big part of the healing is that you do the trip together with your therapist. You, and by the way, you might have a bad trip. I don't like the word because bad trips can also be incredibly healing, but, but they can be very, very challenging. So I like the word challenging trip. Yeah. So, and then, especially then, and by the way, especially when trauma is coming up with trauma is, is a, is a, is a, is a route uh, for a lot of mental health issues. Yeah. Then even more, you need somebody going through this process with you and literally guiding you through the trip. So, and this is why I'm extremely um, focused on, and I hope this stays a very strictly medical truck because also meaning that doesn't mean by the way, you and I and whoever wants can grow mushroom at home. Yeah, I'm very pro, and these are, to be precise, I'm very pro decriminalization. So you have practically three pockets. You have the medical pocket, definitely. Then you have the, should it be legal and sold everywhere? Definitely not, yeah. And then you have sort of these decrim, like should people who grow it themselves, who know what they're doing, yeah, who maybe do it with a very spiritual background, that should be totally fine. Yeah. And a lot of countries, by the way, like the Netherlands, Portugal, parts of the US now handle it like that. Yeah. But it should not be sold lightly. Yeah. On the street ever, or like even not like cannabis in nice shops to people who don't know um, and understand the power of it without a guide. Yeah. Uh, and that's also, sorry when I talk about this, but it, because that's really like the essence of what we want to do with a tie. And I also want to make clear, I had the, the super luck, as I, as I said 10 times, but like I came from a very happy place. Um, I had the right people around me. So I did have great guides yeah, um, in, in, in my first and in the following trip. So everything was right. I, I had also the money to go to the Caribbean, to be at a nice place. So, but ultimately a tie and compass we're doing that stuff because there are hundreds of millions of people out there who have an, a really a mental health issue. Yeah, there are more than more than 300 million people who suffer from depression, and most likely that's just the official number, the unofficial number, because depression and all of that is still a stigma. People don't talk about it, so most likely the real number is even bigger. Yeah, you have hundreds of millions who suffer from addiction, whatever. So. And I really want to make clear, yeah, again, everybody can have a great trip at Birmingham, whatever. Yeah, but like we've, we want to make sure that these people who really need it, and by the way, these are not the people who would go to Burning Man. Yeah, these are the people who need a doctor because they are in a, in a bad place to start. And we want to make sure that these people have access to these amazing, powerful drugs. Yeah. And so when you think about kind of this biotech bucket, is that 
literally one third of kind of your focus, fintechs one third, deep techs one third, or is biotech, it sounds like it's 50% of your kind of investments, but what about like from a mind share standpoint, do you spend 50% of your time thinking about biotech versus the other buckets or, or is there a difference between the amount of capital that you've deployed versus uh, kind of how yeah. you spend your time thinking? Uh, it's very hard to say because my days and are changing whatever is at the moment sort of, I, I would say where my companies need me. So I'm extremely um, one of our, our main focus, I would say, and by the way, every investor would say he, he or she is hands-on. Yeah. But, uh, but I think we really hands-on as an investor, mainly because I'm coming my heart. I'm an entrepreneur. So as I said, I, I think I do certain things really well, which an entrepreneur should do well, like all the, the macro picture, like fundraising strategy vision, but I'm not a good operator, so I shouldn't run a business. So this is what I realized is why I'm so, so I'm not doing it. Yeah, this way, even for a tie, I founded a tie myself, but I teamed up with great guys, uh, Florian Srini, who running the day-to-day -day business uh, um, and, uh, and doing that super well. So, um, but like, because I'm in my heart, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm like extremely hands-on and trying to support my portfolio companies wherever I can with whatever they need. So. So and this fluctuates. So sometimes this company needs me, sometimes there. So, so it's not, there is no real typical Christian day. They're all a little bit different. Um, and then there's interestingly, by the way, there is a lot of, um, there is a lot of overlap or synergy. So I have to say, so there are, there would be two people I credit with, or two, two, one person and one event, like which I credit with understanding Bitcoin, three people. Mike Novogratz told me first, and I did not listen, which was maybe one of the biggest mistakes. I listened when he called me for mushrooms. So, uh, but I did not listen early enough when he called me and he told me like, this was 2012, you need to buy Bitcoin. And I was like, damn it. So then um, actually Mike introduced me to Brandon Bloomer, who then again gave me the whole pitch on Bitcoin and US. And then I thought about exactly what Brandon told me some weeks later on a mushroom trip. And then I was like, now I get it. Um, so, so I think, so this is a fun example, like that there is a lot of sort of indirect synergies you learn. And ultimately I think for an investor, the important thing is you need to stay open. Like you need to, yeah, you need to want to learn stuff. And I, I'm a little bit like a, like a puppy, you throw a ball in the air and I'm like, Oh my God, this is the nicest ball I've ever seen. Yeah. So, um, so like right before we had the, our call, I spoke to an anthropologist like about where humans come from, which I want to learn more about because we also investing, started investing a lot in, in, in brain computer interface stuff, yeah, which ultimately could change what we are as a human. And I think if you want to deal with that stuff, you should understand what makes us human and how can we preserve that in, in technology? Anyway, I, I think there, there is a bigger, I know it sounds like, okay, he's doing biotech, he's doing crypto, he's doing deep tech, but there is for me sort of a, um, a sort of, um, you, you, in, you invest the exact same way that I think, uh, is, 
um, the absolute best way to invest, right? And, and uh, uh, people will think because we're talking on here that uh, I'm just saying this, but they've if you've listened to the podcast before, people will have heard me say, I basically think of uh, the intersection of two ideas as the absolute best place to invest. One is things that are on the fringes of society, but will become mainstream in the future, right? So if you kind of think of, uh, they are the most asymmetric type of opportunities because you're basically making a bet on a space or a company before everyone else thinks that that is a thing. And when it goes from a contrarian idea to a consensus idea, there's incredible upside to be captured and that's where you get the asymmetry. But the second thing also is uh, you invest along very long time horizons, right? You're not day trading stocks. You're not kind of yeah. doing a lot of that stuff. You are looking at things that are going to take you know years, if not decades to kind of come to fruition. And so what that allows for a very long period of time for the uh, capital and in, uh, to compound because of innovation. And so to me, it's all tied together because it's basically you're looking at you know society, if you will, you're going to the fringes and you're saying, what are the things that today are accepted at the fringes, but not yet at the mainstream? And how do I basically put stakes in the ground and the things I believe in there? And then as they kind of get pulled into the mainstream, they become consensus ideas. Obviously, they will accrue tons and tons of value. Is that fair? Perfect summary. And I would add, I would add one more important point. I just invest in companies and people and ideas, which somehow excite me because I don't need to do it. I'm not running a fund. Um, I, I have enough that I could stop. I don't want to stop. I really, I, I always would describe it. Everything I'm doing is my constant hobby. That's the only reason I can, because I, in, in work terms, I think I work a lot. Yeah. But I don't, it doesn't feel like work. It feels super exciting because I'm I would do exactly the same if you would say, I give you four more weeks. I was like, well, then that's what I'm doing because I love it. Yeah. So, and one of the things I love, and by the way, it's always important that if I come back to self-exploration psychedelics, that doesn't mean this is the way to do it because I think one of the most important things with psychedelics was, and I had that already before with meditation and there are other techn techniques, you need to know what you want as a human being. Yeah. But I want that. That's what excites me. I want to always see new stuff and I want to invest in things and companies and ideas and, and human beings who shape the world. I hopefully going to live in for a very long time. Yeah. So I want to contribute a little bit to the world, which, yeah, which I will be a consumer, so to say, hopefully, as I said, for, for a very long time. I love it. Let's talk about Bitcoin uh, before I let you go. Uh, you described a little bit about how you kind of came across Bitcoin. What's your view on it today? Um, how do you think about it within your portfolio? Did you just go buy a bunch of Bitcoin and you're sitting on it? Um, are there other things that you're doing in the space? Just talk to me kind of about your philosophy and, and how you're gaining uh, kind of exposure uh, to that asset and industry. Yeah. Well, I'm not trading. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not trading in anything. Like, so I'm not, uh, that's just not, you can't do both. Uh, I have a the long-term view and I'm preaching, I think to the super converted like you and your, your viewers, but it's, I think it's so simple. If you look at the, um, at what politicians, by the way, on both sides of the spectrum. So both left-wing and, and right-wing politicians in Europe, in, in America, everywhere they have, they are actually, they are hooked on, they are like, Opioid, like they are addicted to money printing. And I think there is no good outcome and you can't come off. I think it's a very strong structural addiction, yeah, which I don't think they will overcome. I don't also think it's going to be completely blowing in our face, but I think that fiat currencies will gradually but very strongly devaluate over the next. And, and it has already started, but I think the last 10 years 
with just a tiny bit of start in what we're going to see in the devaluation of fiat currencies. Uh, and they're all doing the same. So you don't have an escape that you say, oh, I go to this currency or that one. It's a global phenomenon. Yeah, because by the way, meaning philosophically or observing, it's because also we're living in a, people don't want to suffer. Yeah, uh, you can say this is good, but like if I think about, and I come back to, to fiat currency in a second, when I had my, when I lived through the first real crisis, in crisis, I mean the economic crisis, this was like the 2000 crash and then 2001, when uh, the two planes or what is the two plane, it flew in a twin tower, yeah, that was a real recession, yeah. And it was similar than COVID because it was not my fault. Yeah, I was sitting there as a small entrepreneur. Yeah, there was a global recession, but back then nobody would have said, well, terrorists flew in the Twin Tower. It's not the fault of uh, companies, tech stars. We're gonna help you and throw money at you. No, back then, most of the companies went bankrupt. And it was healthy, by the way. I am very skeptical that we pumping so much money in it. Yeah, and, and then even in 2008 in the crisis, yeah, meaning again, was Lehman my fault? Yeah, no, but I had to go through it. Stocks I owned were going down. Companies had a hard time and nobody was helping because that's normally how, how economic life was seen. You go through cycles and normally cycles are always an external shock. It's never you who sort of is responsible anyway and somehow we switched but this is also a little bit the sort of the zeitgeist is that we don't want to suffer suddenly yes COVID is bad and COVID is an external shock but it's just another external shock and we could just have said look let's use that to sort of let company go bankrupt let things go the weak ones yeah i mean starvinian uh, theory but we didn't we said hey no we don't want to suffer people shouldn't lose their job blah, blah, blah. let's throw money on it yeah and i think they can't stop so people will always now say hey there is a way easier way than suffering why don't we just print money yeah so that's going to be and there will always be problems after covid there will be another problem another problem anyway having said that i think we're going into this 10 20 year cycle of fiat currency devaluation, which by the way means any solid asset will go up. Yeah. So, so this is why tech is going up, biotech is going up and there will be obviously within that mega cycle, there will be ups and downs, but like, and Bitcoin is the sort of synonym for stability or for the opposite. Yeah. For integrity, yeah, uh, for politicians not being able to meddle with it. So I think among that, as I said, biotech, I think is one tech, fintech, uh, tech, uh, and, and, and Bitcoin, yeah, are, some, are sort of the core pillars of, uh, of my asset location. Do you do any real estate investing? A tiny bit. A tiny Maybe bit. Too little. I do think there will interest rates might go up. So I'm, I, I do real estate, but not on a large scale. And I'm, I'm, I think what we could see, which I think would be a little bit of in that mega cycle of, of currency devaluation, it doesn't mean that everything is going up like a straight line. So, and I, so I, what my view is, my macro view is that next year going to be one of the craziest positive years of our lives, because I think they're pumping money in the market as long as COVID is there. And in the moment COVID is over, people will spend like hell. So my, my fun quote is like in the medieval ages, there were like orgies for years straight after the Black Death. Yeah. So, and in a certain way, we're going to bring the orgies on, like we're going to go on holidays. We're going to go on concerts, like people will spend as there if there is no tomorrow, my few. So we're going to see an overshooting economy and that could for the first time since 10 years or whatever, lead to 
um, inflation. Yeah, because so far, despite, which is interesting, despite the money printing, we didn't see consumer price inflation. We saw asset price inflation already. Yeah, but if, if consumer price inflation comes, which I think could come at least for a period, yeah, then they need to take interest rates a little bit up. And that could be extremely sort of negative for the short term for real estate, even for tech, by the way, because a lot of the tech valuations are sort of kind of packed to the super low um super low zero interest uh, rate environment. Absolutely. Uh, before I get into the rapid fire questions to, uh, to wrap this up, what's the most contrarian idea you have right now? Like what's the thing that you believe? And if you say it, other people will be shocked that you believe it. Isn't that the famous Peter Thiel question? <laughs> he, 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 I think, uh, likes what you ask or like what you believe that other people disagree with. Like, like what's the secret that you know that other people don't know? I, I, I'm asking more about like, what is the thing that you believe that other people will be surprised that you believe? It's a good question. We, finally, we talked about all the controversial stuff, which is suddenly not controversial anymore about psychedelics <laughs> and longevity, whatever. Um, to me, I, it's more, it's more something that violates, uh, how you, how people perceive you. Right. So like, let's say for example, somebody who, uh, is really religious, right. All of a sudden them saying, uh, I actually don't believe in God. That would surprise people about that person. And so what is the thing that, um, based on either the work you do, uh, the lifestyle you live, the, uh, the person that you are, that maybe you have a belief that's counter to what people would expect it to be. It's a good question. I mean, I'm, meaning I told you, I, mean, I think, but it's not counter because I'm, I'm personally actually very spiritual. Yeah. So, but that's, everybody knows that. So, um, nothing comes, I'm always pretty open with what I believe. So it's not, I, I would say, honestly, if like, I think if I had something I really believe in, you would already know because one of the things is no, but one of the things was always like, I had this big luck that I had success early on. And I was like, I don't need to please anybody. I hopefully people like me. I actually want to be liked. I, this is why I couldn't go in politics. Like I, I hope people do like me, like, but like, but I don't need to like, I, so I always thought like be open of, and that's what it actually it served me so well. I mean, you always have then one or two negative experiences where people abuse that openness, but in general, again, take the magic mushroom thing. If I wouldn't have been open again in a time where it was not sort of convenient to be open about magic mushrooms, uh, I, we wouldn't sit here. Like I wouldn't have compass. I wouldn't have a tie. Yeah. So being open about what I think, um, um, actually, um, actually served me well. So there is nothing hidden. I would say. I love that answer. Uh, I always ask everyone the same two questions and you'll get to ask me one at the end. The first is what's the most important book that you've ever read? Think and grow rich by far. Ah, Wait, why that one? That's one of my three. Because it made me to a certain extent. I, I, I really want to say it that strongly. I went in, I really still know it. I went in a bookshop in Munich when I was 14 years old. And there was, again, I believe in that stuff. So um, there was just like this, I think in English you call it epiphany. Yeah. Um, so I go into this bookshop and there was these, um, which is not, I think it's not around anymore. It was a very famous one, Hugendubel, for the Germans listening, uh, in Munich. And then, um, and I went in and there was this massive wall 
of books all think and grow rich. And I was like, as a 14 year old, oh my God, this is, this is it. Like this is was literally like a, a religious epiphany. So I bought the book and I think it's a beautiful description uh, for the Germans, the title is a little bit, uh, because in Germany, we don't like to talk about money so much. Uh, it's a little bit of a different culture, like in America. It's a very American book, which made me actually very American. I think for a German guy, German friends over there, Christian is very, very Americanized in his thinking. And this is due to this book. Yeah. And I think though it's so timeless and I read it maybe 30 times. Yeah. Because I think it's really like, it's a, it, it works. Yeah. And then later on, I read more books again, more on the spiritual side of respect, like law of attraction, which though are the same sort of takeaways in different wording. Yeah. So I always think for the ones who don't want to go too sort of spiritual crazy at the beginning, like this is a beautiful, easy to serve timeless wisdom. So, yeah. I, I, I uh, always tell people three books that I read when I was 20, 21 years old, uh, rich dad, poor dad, uh, thinking grow rich. And, um, uh, what is the other one? Um, oh man, I'm going to blank on it. No, uh, thinking um, grow rich. It's, it'll come to me. Napoleon Hill, uh, rich dad, poor Murphy, dad. There is another guy. Murphy has similar, it's all the same age, almost the same out of the same time. Richest man, richest man in Babylon. That's what it is. Which one? The richest man in Babylon. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Those three, those three books. It's all the same messaging yes. and it works by the way. Finally you meet. And again, not a lot of people want to talk about it because it's either they think, oh, this is too simple to sort of do sort of say my success is based on that. Or in Germany you would say, you don't want to admit that you read a book and were fascinated by it when you were 14, which is called think and grow rich. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it is like, I think everything, if you think about how messed up our education system is, um, yeah, every child should read it. This, if I think we would do the world, um, uh, an enormous, uh, enormous favor. What about uh second question, which is more fun aliens. Are you a believer or a non-believer? Oh, that's, I mean, I definitely believe that there are aliens. Um, so I mean, statistically everything, this must be, this is like, yeah. Um, the question is, are they sort of meaning there are all these sub questions like are they still there are they already extinct can they come to us if they hear that so but i think yes meaning i think there are aliens the question is i don't know if we're gonna make contact um yeah but i definitely think there are all right do you think that we've already made contact i think yes but you mean now like in our lifetime like we as us our generation yes. or us as humans humans Yes, think I think so. so. I actually, yeah. uh, another, um, actually psychedelics are so amazing because you meet so many amazing people. Uh, I just had, by the way, another thing, which is maybe not, I don't want to jump now from aliens to that because he's not talking about aliens, but what goes in that direction is I think we, what, what I'm thinking a lot and which is my sort of reading list for, for the holidays is um, we know so little still where we come from. Yeah. And so I had these fascinating Zoom chat um, uh, a week ago with Graham Hancock. Do you know Graham mm -hmm. Hancock? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amazing guy. I mean, his books, I started reading some of them. I have the whole reading list. And so I think there is, I think we shouldn't not exclude the alien question the same, like maybe there were high cultures 20,000 years ago, which completely got lost. Maybe 
I think we're too stiff in, even in science. I think people, and that's what actually is worrying me a bit. You have on the one side, you have, you have actually the entrepreneurs who like, and which I think is the right way to go is like, sort of the sky's the limit and why not think about that and why not think about that? But somehow society is sort of very conformistic. So, so, so maybe, maybe that's a point people always think, um, um, I'm gay, I'm liberal, but like, I'm, I'm not so sure if the, the left, if, if there is the left is going in the right direction. And this is saying light uh, precaution, like, because we we too conformistic actually they think they are colorful but like we sort of narrowing down too much and thoughts which are not allowed to be thought and there should be no thought which should not which should not be allowed to be thought we should be way more open to to thinking okay why not is this the right thing you know what I mean like I think we're yes. becoming a little bit con- is this this whole new generation is poli- I, I hate political correctness I think it's so wrong why should me I can decide if somebody is offending me I turn around and go away but I, nobody can offend me like everybody can say anything like we, we shouldn't be like so snowflakey that's maybe what <laughs> if to come back to a question people might not think about me but I think we should be way more and, and, and we completely losing especially in politics the the power of debate. Yeah, we cannot sort of the, the whole safe space idea is, is completely uh, alien to me because we yeah, it doesn't mean people need to be safe, but like say, so we need to discuss things. You can't shut down discussions, especially when they're unpleasant. Yeah, then we need to have them and then we need to think about it again. We need to shock our brain with new things all the time and not being conformistic all, all the way. I could not agree more. I think that that is one of the uh, the craziest parts of the world that we live in today is that there are certain things that we can't talk about. And uh, one of my favorite lines is uh, is from Joe Rogan. He basically says, uh, you know, look, once an idea goes from, um, you know, being able to be discussed to not, we've now transformed into a religion, right? Yes. You, you, li- you literally yeah. get, you, you enter into religion st- uh, kind of uh, field. Uh, all right. So, that is a good, a good point because that's, the fine line I, I said so often because it's important for my life that I'm spiritual, but organized religion always turned bad most in most of the cases. And by the way, that's the, the sad part. If you look at most religions were actually based on psychedelics for everybody's viewing, read a book and you should, I told you before, you should get him on a podcast because that's a whole different topic. Like Brian Murescu, he wrote the immortality key about the origins of religions based on psychedelics. But what happened, so all religions were based on psychedelics, or most, or not, most of them, yeah, including most likely Christianity. At the beginning, they were very inclusive and spiritual. But then when they turned into an organization, people were actually saying, hey, let's exclude the, the thinkers, the new ideas, because you can't run an organization uh, with, with people speaking to God every day. So, and then every religion, if you look at, Christianity, Islam, whatever, they went through a phase where they burned the heretics. Yeah, but the heretics were the ones who normally, if you look back now, they were the spiritual ones. They were the ones who took psychedelics, who were like, so. and we going through like a new era where we start burning the heretics and where sort of a, an originally good idea, sort of the liberal left, which was great. They fought for many things, which are important for me personally. I don't want, I wouldn't be like to be gay in the fifties. So it was extremely valuable, but then somewhere it starts to become, as you say, out of something humanitarian, out of something good, it starts becoming a religion 
and then the religion starts burning the heretics and that's actually actually almost burning your own origins yeah and it's very sad absolutely you could ask me one question to wrap this up what do you got for me What's the most interesting, the other question around, because I'm always interested in new technologies or new ideas. What's the craziest contrarian idea you have seen or in your podcasts or in your discussions where I should look at? I, I don't know if it's necessarily a crazy or contrarian. I think the space that um, is going to be much better than uh, people expect. Uh, you know, obviously there's Bitcoin. I think, I think including me, everyone is underestimating how big this thing will get, um, but we'll, we'll see. Uh, but there's a lot of talk about kind of uh, brain computer in- interfaces. So how do I take something and I put it in my brain? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of, uh, of interesting things are gonna come out of the idea of how do I tell my brain what, or how does my brain tell computers what to do? And what I mean by that is, um, you know, uh, I recently invested in a company uh, called Atom Limbs that basically uh, they've got prosthetics. Uh, so let's say an, a prosthetic arm and it's connected so that when I think I can literally move the fingers, I can pick things up, I can do things and it operates just like a regular arm would uh, and it's being controlled by my brain, right? And so when you start to, to think about uh, the brain is a two-directional, uh, you know, computer basically. And so, yes, we can definitely augment it. We can put things into the brain. We can do all kinds of great stuff, uh, everything from just eating healthier, not drinking lots of alcohol, you know, kind of natural type stuff to literally augmenting it with technology. But also I think about uh, this idea of uh, connecting uh, your brain to computers and, and having your brain somehow, you know, very quickly tell the computers what to do. Uh, I don't quite yet know all the different ways that that'll be applied, but that to me feels like oh, a big space I mean- that no one's talking about. I actually think that's going to be something like an iPhone is today, which is going to be applied to everything because what yeah. I mean, we interacting already, we actually interacting in a very archaic way with our phone, we typing, yeah, which is very archaic. So they're trying to upgrade it to, uh, to, um, to language, Siri, whatever, but the natural thing is would be just thinking. Yeah. And yeah. I think there is no I meaning I give it 10 years, maybe 15, and we, I saw another comedy, I'm going to bring it on like somewhere next year when it's out of sales, but like they believe, and it's more than belief because they have the basic technology for it. In 10, 15 years, we can do telepathy, not because it's magic, but because if you already, exactly what you say, if you already can now tell your arm what to do, uh, if, if, or a, a prosthetic arm, yeah, so that is your brain thinking and sending a message, yeah. The next step is that your brain will be able to interact with your computer um, that you can dictate an email by thinking of it. But if that happens, I can equally send you a message to you from brain to brain. And that, that, and this is what I said before, this is why I'm so interested in sort of the origins of humanity, uh, because this will ultimately change what we now think is human. So we need to go to the very core, what really defines of being human, and then preserve that while we might leave behind things which we think now is human, but maybe in 20 years is not anymore. Could not agree more. Where can we send people to find out uh, more about all the things you're working on or find you on the internet? Um, I actually started posting a lot on LinkedIn because I think, meaning I like Twitter as well. Twitter is sometimes a little bit uh, negative. So I, I think LinkedIn is more it's more friendly. That's another thing. I don't know why people are so negative to each other, especially on Twitter. Twitter is, I think, not good for your brain, meaning I'm using it. I'm posting stuff if I want to 
say something, announce something. But I, I think it's like always when I start using it, I get sad and then I let it go, like, because I don't want to be sad. Um, so, um, yeah, LinkedIn, I think is the best. That's fair, man. Listen, thank you so much for doing this. You are okay, no, uh, amazing. I love to talk about what excites me. So, um, thank you very much. It was awesome.